Support for Inkslingers comes from the Leon Levy Center for Biography, cultivating important discussions about the art and craft of biography. Welcome to Inkslingers. I'm Jenny Skoog. Today's guest is Melissa Phoebos. Melissa Phoebos is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Whip Smart, and the essay collection, Abandon Me, she has a second essay collection, Girlhood, that was published in March 2021. Phoebos is a professor at the University of Iowa. Melissa Phoebos, welcome to Inkslingers. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. Congratulations on the huge success of Girlhood. This is your second essay collection and your third memoir. What's the difference or distinction between a personal essay and a memoir? I guess I think the primary distinction is that that's what it says on the cover, which is uh, some kind of uh, the result of a long conversations, if you're me, between the writer and the editor and the marketing department, right? Um, I think in terms of uh, the aesthetics of it, um, it has to do with the overarching narrative, right? If the overarching narrative, it can, if it can be read as a single story, then everyone is going to want to call it a memoir, except maybe the writer <laughs> who wrote it as essays. But um, my essay collections are really... Um, distinct in terms of the pieces. So I think like this book is, they're, they're much more separate than they have been in my previous work. Tell me about the title of Girlhood. How did you come to this title? With some trepidation, I would say. Um, you know, I, my agent asked me what I was working on a few months after Abandon Me, my second book came out. And I was like, I don't know, I'm just writing these essays. And he's like, well, what do they have in common? Go see if there's a book in there. And I was like, okay. So I went and looked at everything that I had been writing and everything I had recently written and everything I was planning on writing. And I thought, what do all of these have in common? And it was immediately clear to me that they had the common denominator of the theme of girlhood. They were sort of using my own adolescence as a kind of touchstone to move and radiate in sort of all different directions. And I came back to him with this information and he was like, amazing, we'll call it girlhood. And I was like, ew, no. And some of that I think was like, I don't know, you know, I mean, I do know it was like my internalized misogyny. I was like, oh no, nobody will want to buy a book called girlhood, um, which is bizarre, but kind of bananas, right? Because I would want to buy that book. And so would most of the people I care about. <laughs> so I don't know who I was thinking of, right? Um, but I also thought like, oh, no, that will be misleading. Because the word girlhood makes me think of pink things. And this book is not full of pink things. This book is going to be like, um, you know, all of the things that we try to sort of pink wash, right? It's going to be the underneath, um, the shadowy stuff, the real stuff. Um, and he made the case to me and was absolutely correct um, that that was a reason to have that be the title rather than to have it not be the title so that we can sort of um, make room for a larger truth. 
right? Both in sort of the subject, um, but also in terms of the word, you know, and I've gotten so attached to it over the time since then, which was years ago. And now I really love it. And it feels really special to me. And I feel, um, I don't know, sort of protective of it, even when I think back to all of my negative thoughts about it. So it's, that's been its own journey. You write that your own girlhood, quote, felt tinged by a darkness that the story of adolescent rebellion did not suffice to explain, unquote. In the years since you've tried to examine what was wrong with you, what has been your conclusion? Hmm. Um, my conclusion has been that there is nothing wrong with me except the fact that I was a girl growing up in a patriarchal culture. And that actually all of the ways of responding to my own sexual development, to my early sexual experiences, to other people's reactions to my body were absolutely reasonable responses to what I was dealing with. You know, um, I think it was because of that sort of false story of girlhood that we're supposed to be sort of protected and innocent and happy and then have this blossoming and it's beautiful and we're a woman now. And while there is room for that and I want to make room for that, the reality is that it was deeply uncomfortable. I felt incredibly degraded by the ways that I was treated after I came of age sexually. And I had no way to sort of talk about or make sense of that, you know, and, and the tools that I had were totally insufficient despite having like really wonderful parents. Um, there were just no match for like the culture at large. So I have really come to sort of, um, understand and accept and feel sort of like, angry and righteous on behalf of that young person and everything that she went through. And by writing this book, you say that you've corrected the story of your own girlhood and found ways to recover yourself. So when did you discover that writing could be such a therapeutic process? I started writing in journals when I was like eight or nine years old. And I was already by that point an obsessive reader. Like I was, as soon as I learned to read, I was obsessed with reading. I was obsessed with books. I wanted other people to read to me. I wanted to read to other people. I wanted to read to myself. Like it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And, and I think I understood writing. I was just like a verbally inclined kid, but I also understood writing was a place where I could say things that I couldn't say with my mouth. It was a place where I could externalize things, put words to them, um, and where I could try out a way of understanding or creating a story around or making sense of things that were just like swirling around in my head and then I was too afraid. I just like, or just literally it felt impossible to talk to other people about them. And so I was a journaler. I was scribbling little poems, like writing things in code. I had little diaries with locks, all of it. I was obsessed with, I was like total notebook fetishist from like always. Um, and so I think I had that relationship to it really, really early. And it helped me so much as a kid. And so it's been this space that I trusted to do that work and a space where I could do that work with myself from from the very beginning, which is something I'm incredibly grateful for because that's not how it happens, I think, for most writers, but I needed it and, and it presented itself and I just never stopped. You have this incredible ability to re-examine these uncomfortably like mundane moments in your life. How are you able to do that? I mean, 
I don't know if I can explain it exactly, but my suspicion is this, that what I am doing is using, I'm describing a little bit of my life, but mostly what I'm trying to describe, particularly in sort of simile and metaphor and image and sound, like the creative parts of it, I'm not really trying to describe what happened. I'm trying to describe how it felt. And the feelings just are universal, right? Like I think we all might not have changed our clothes under our clothes in the locker room in the same particular kind. I mean, some of us definitely did, but um, some maybe it was like in the sleeping bag at summer camp or like whatever, you know, it was just like wearing the baggy things or like averting your gaze from the boutique windows or whatever it is like body shame, especially for adolescent girls in this country is somewhat universal. I'm sure not everybody has it, but everyone I know Mm -hmm. has had it or had it during that time in their life. And so when I'm trying to think of sort of comparisons or images or colors or whatever, a way of describing, I'm just trying to describe that shame and that confusion and that secrecy and that pleasure, whatever it is, I'm really trying to describe like the feeling. And in that way, it ends up, I think, transcending the particular details of my life, which are mm-hmm. never going to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you talk about keeping a diary from those years or sort of like journaling or, you know, writing things down when you were a young girl. When you go back and read this stuff, how quickly do those moments come back to you? Or is that somebody else? In other words, are you still that same person? Mm. Mm. That's an interesting question. You're welcome. I don't know if I know. I mean, yes, and also definitely not. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's funny because I described this experience in the book of going, remembering something, remembering this episode of bullying and going back to my journal when I was like 11 and finding a description of that time. And I totally rewrote it and tried to like erase the traumatic parts of it in my diary. And, and I remember how it actually felt. And I also remember like writing in my diary and the weird excitement and also like I don't know, even in some cases, not knowing how to put words to it or not wanting to look at what didn't make sense to me and just shuffling it into a place that made more sense that felt easier. And, you know, I I can have so much sympathy for that younger person because I can see the way adults do that. We're doing that all the time. I'm like retelling the story about funny thing that happened at the grocery store and I'm simplifying it and like smoothing over this part and amplifying, you know, it's like, creative nonfiction, as my partner's always saying with little air quotes, like, oh, how's your creative nonfiction going? Um, Because we just do that, right? As people, (laughs) she's just (laughs) such a Sagittarius. Um, And so like, you know, in many ways, I am much more willing to look at the truth of what has happened to me. I have all of the resources of all the years of therapy and the community and the relationships and the the integrity that I've developed since then so that I'm much more able to sort of look at what has happened and what is happening. But I also still relate to that kid. Like it is, it's hard to face what's really happening in the moment that it's happening. In many ways, I think that's why I'm a writer because I just do whatever I need to, to get through an experience. Um, 
but sometimes holding on to the stories that we create in those moments is not does not make for like a happy existence and so with writing I always have that place where I can go back and interrogate the story I've created and and decide if I want to hold on to that or if I want if there's a more honest version you know so I'm, I'm definitely the same person but I have many many more resources now and for that I'm really glad you write about so many things, including identity and sexuality and past career choices and so on. What drives you to write about such personal and intimate details in your life? After my first two books, at least, I may feel like this after this third one too. I won't be surprised if I do. I was like, well, that was an amazing experience. I'm so glad that I'm never going to write about anything that personal ever again, (laughs) because I'm tired. (laughs) Um, And it has been like, I mean, here's the thing is like, when I write it, I am totally alone, right? Like, I don't have to write it in front of anyone. I don't have to find the words for my most personal vulnerable experiences in front of an audience. It's just me in front of my computer. And I can try it as many times as I want to until I get a version that I feel comfortable sharing. So I think like, it seems like I'm just like dropping trow in front of everyone when you read the book. Um, But actually I've practiced it for like five years beforehand, you know, and I also don't actually have to be there when other people see it. And so it's a very safe way actually to reveal myself, you know, and aside from that, a couple things. One is that the process of writing about my most personal, most painful, most confusing experiences has brought more healing into my life than any other single element. More than therapy, more than um, any single relationship. Like my relationship to writing has been a tool for catharsis and healing and liberation. And it's really hard to not do that once you know that you can. So I I don't even really try, you know? Um, And I also have heard back, like thank goodness for the internet that I started publishing and we had email because I have heard back from so many readers who told me that they had a similar experience of reading it. And so whatever the downsides, and there are plenty of downsides, um, but they are far, far outweighed by the rewards, both from me and from what I've heard from other people. And um, so ultimately I feel really fortunate to be able to do it. So along those lines, it's one thing to write a deeply personal and intimate book, but quite another to talk about it to strangers on a book tour. So in preparing for this interview, I went back and listened to conversations that you had in regards to the launch of your first book, Whip Smart. And I was shocked at some of the deeply personal questions that you were asked. Um, And many of these questions do not Mm. age well. And this was only like 11 years ago. So yet you answered these intrusive questions with patience and grace. And I wondered, how do you keep your composure when someone asks something so intrusive? There were times where I felt horrified, totally grief-stricken, mortified inside myself. And whatever it is, I think it's a combination of like being a teacher, you know, and having like performance elements. Like I really know how to put up a protective sort of front and keep talking even when I'm like dying inside. And so for a lot of those interviews and, and like Q and A's, I probably was really, really upset. Um, 
and I just played it off. But what happens is like after like it happens 10, 15, 20, 50 times, like I would say by the 10th interview, I felt like a pro. Like it didn't upset me. I was used to like, cause it was the same sort of rude or intrusive or like obvious questions over and over and over again. Um, and I really became a master of like, no matter what question the interviewer asked me, I would find a way to circle it around to whatever it is that I wanted to talk about, which meant most of the time that people were like asking me questions about my personal experience or my sexual experience or isn't my mother ashamed of me or whatever. Um, and I would just find a way to be like, you know, that's really interesting. Cause one of my favorite topics to write about is shame. And one of the ways that I do that in this book, I'm just like, I'm just going to talk about my craft because that's what I want to talk about. Nobody's asking me about it. Um, cause I wrote a memoir about really personal stuff. So, um, here we go, you know, and I just like figured out how to connect any two subjects within like three beats. So is there anything that you would not write about there are definitely lots of things I wouldn't write about my uh, partnership, uh, about my family. There are lots of sort of boundaries around other people's stuff that are private and that are not for me to share. And there's stuff about my own life and my own history that some of it, I feel like I'm just not ready yet. And I will be someday. And some of it I'm like, it's in the never category. And I know that that still is, can be a weekly category. We'll see what happens over time. But yeah, there's definitely stuff. The New York Times called Girlhood a feminist testament to survival, smart, radical, and not ordinary at all. Your other books were equally critically acclaimed. You've won numerous awards for your writing. What pressure do you feel when you put something out into the world? Oh, I want to say that I don't feel pressure, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, you know, there's always the fear that like, maybe there's not, maybe there's not. Sometimes there is a fear that like, when no one's really seen it yet and I put it out there, um, like people aren't going to like it or they're going to misinterpret it or they're going to willfully misinterpret it because that happens. It's actually sort of inevitable that that happens. But I will say that, I think because I have such a powerful personal relationship to my work, like writing means so much more to me than what happens after I publish it, that it does take a huge amount of the pressure off. Like I care very much that people like my work and that it does well in the world. Like that's important to me. Um, but I really do know that even if I were to never ever publish another thing, I would be writing for the rest of my life. It's just, it serves such a bigger role in my life than as a professional pursuit. And part of that is um, a privilege because I also am able to have a job so that I can write whatever I want, you know, cause my income isn't dependent on it. Um, but yeah, so just a regular amount of pressure. <laughs> How susceptible are you to negative criticism? I think it's sort of the case for most folks, except those of us with like the strongest character. And I say us as if I'm included, but I'm not included in that. Like uh, for, for, for the first book, it's really hard not to just read everything. It's really hard. Um, and then I get, I got burned. Like I read it all and I was like, oh, and as it turns out, like 95% of it is really positive, but that stuff just slides off of you like water, right? The stuff that gets engraved in your heart is the negative, the ridiculous negative stuff. Um, my therapist once told me it's biological, right? That we need to be clued into the things that threaten us because like our little 
like deep animal brain understands that to be important to our survival, right? Um, but I do not need to know about those threatening things because they are not necessary to my survival. So I don't read good reviews. I don't read Amazon reviews. I don't read the comments on anything that I write that's posted online. I do read like full length reviews and newspapers and stuff, but I have my partner or my publicist or someone else read them first. And I only read them if they're really positive because as most writers will tell you anything and even the best reviews sometimes feel completely wrong. <laughs> you know, like it's really hard for a reviewer to really enter into the book and not just be writing about themselves. And I say that I include myself in this as a critic, you know? So if I could not read anything and be one of those like very rare people, I would be, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> You dedicate girlhood to your mom, quote, to whom I owe everything and from whom I heard all of it first, unquote. Tell me about her. Uh, she's an amazing lady. Um, she is a therapist and um, she taught me how to talk about my feelings without with a skill without which I don't know if any of my books would exist. Um, and, you know, I gave her hell in my girlhood. I was going through hell and I made her life hell. And it was a really, really hard time for both of us. And it's because of her that I was able to come out the other side of it and, and have a life that I absolutely love. Um, and she's like, she's my best friend. I talk to her almost every day. Um, I just, she's one of my favorite people on the planet. And she's been such an incredible model for so many of the things that are important to me as someone who has just continued growing her entire life. Um, someone who knows how to admit when she's wrong and apologize. Someone who is like deeply passionately in love with her work um, and is always sort of challenging herself and finding new ways to grow. Like I could go on and on, but she is a very special lady. Um, and it was just the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me that I got to be her daughter. You grapple on the page with previous things you've written. You, you sort of process, you know, over the years with your writing and you talk about some of the same things, but in mm -hmm. this new light. Um, mm -hmm. So knowing that something is set in stone, right? Uh, mm -hmm. How are you able to fix the record or to be like, well, I didn't mean that. Or, mm -hmm. you know, tell me about that process. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely been... Um... It's been a process. I, you know, when I wrote my first book, I was like, well, I'm so glad I got that out of the way so that I never have to write about that yes. stuff again. And then I was writing my second book and I was like, oh, wait, uh, am I going to have to write a little bit about that in here too? And I was like, oh, and I tried not to, and it was impossible not to. Um, and then the same thing happened with this book, but I fought it less because in the interim, I did some real deep thinking about what the role of the memoirist and the personal essayist and the person who is, you know, trying to be an advocate for growing and changing and changing your mind, changing myself and changing my mind and changing my relationship to the past. And I can't do that without demonstrating how it's different now. And so I'm very careful to to not try to correct the record in terms of like, uh, I take back what I said before, because what I said before was absolutely true when I said it, you know, like that is 
of the best possible record I could manage of my understanding of something at a particular moment in time. And now I understand it differently. And, you know, at first I thought there's not room for that. And then I realized that I love it when other writers do that because it gives me permission to change my mind about things, you know, like I don't have to, um, hold on to the same story that I had about myself or anyone else or any subject, I can always change my mind. Even if I've written about it and it'll be out there forever, I can still change my mind. You live with chronic debilitating back pain. As a fiercely independent woman, how has this changed the way that you work? Oh, it's been so uncomfortable. I hate asking for help. (laughs) I hate it. And also it has been such an incredible opportunity to grow because my instincts are to never accept help, to never ask for help, to try to do everything on my own. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I got it. I got it. I'm fine. Like that's my, the refrain of my life, you know? Um, but when I am like literally on the floor and cannot walk, like I'm not fine. I don't got it. I need a lot of help. Um, And I have been really, really, really lucky um, to have a partner and to have a family who have really shown up for me and my body um, in times when I needed help. And it's been humbling. And I don't know, it's really made me understand love as an action more than I ever have. Um, And it's just made me have so much reverence for anyone dealing with um, disability, chronic pain, it make it has made me um, a more considerate, uh, a more grateful, and um, a more well-rounded person. You know, vulnerability is what begets intimacy, and there are forms of vulnerability I would never choose, but I'm so grateful that they have befallen me because they've increased the intimacy of so many of my relationships. You've spent time at writers' retreats, and you recently moved to Iowa. How does your daily writing routine change based on your geographic location? My geographic location often indicates something about what I'm doing in that space. And so like when I am home, let's see, when I was home in New York, what that meant about my writing routine was that I needed noise canceling headphones. Um, And that I had to really, really, really protect my writing days because everything about living in New York was so exhausting and took so much time. I say this as a person who's deeply soul matched with New York and always will be. Um, But it, it, over the 20 years that I lived there, it got, in the last five years, it got really hard to write there. And so here at home, my new home in the Midwest, I don't need noise canceling headphones. Um, And while I still have to protect my time, it just, there is a way that the physical space here has translated into metaphysical space. Like there is just more space for me to think and philosophize and dig into things. it's just quieter, you know? And I didn't really care about that before. I sort of thrived on noise. And as I've aged, I need more and more quiet and more and more space to be able to really immerse myself. And I used to go to residencies every year because I needed to like go to a place where there was space and quiet so that I could do that deep, deep dive um, into the work. And I, while I still think I'll do that, I don't think I'll need it in the same way because it is, I get more of that here you know. Tell me about your writing process. Well, um, 
I usually have things percolating for a little while before I start writing. And then I have a pretty delineated process. It has been revamped many, basically for every book, I have to sort of reinvent my writing process, but there is always a way that it follows the sort of stages of like rumination, notes and outlining, drafting, research, more drafting, let it sit for a while, come back and revise, maybe cut things up and tape them together and then repeat like seven more times with the revision. Um, but I'm pretty like, once I've got, once I've like sunk my teeth into something, I'm pretty good. If I just like keep writing every day, I can churn out a draft pretty quickly because it's been rolling around in my head for a while, sometimes for years. As a nonfiction writing professor, what advice do you give to budding memoirists? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> so many, I have so much advice for them. I'll say some of the most common stuff is um, just celebrate everything you know, celebrate everything you can because it's such hard work, you know, that we just need so much encouragement and celebration and praise. And um, it has to be a joyful process or else why are we doing it, you know? <laughs> um, so I really try to like bring the joy and the praise and the celebration into the process um, because it is, it requires so much rigor. And while we do have to cultivate that, it we need a lot of joy to support it, you know? So I'm like equal parts rigor and joy, you know? Yeah, because typically memoir is not such a joyful process when you're looking back on something. Um, yeah, it can, it. it's like really, really smart. Revisiting your traumas. Yeah, and I think like having support, building community around it, like all, there's so much that goes into writing that's beyond mm -hmm. like typing mm -hmm. or scribbling. Halfway through, graduate school, you switched from fiction to nonfiction. Why? What brought you to nonfiction? I think the constraint of nonfiction works for me. I don't have a very inventive imagination. Like I think I'm an imaginative person. I'm a creative person, but I'm not like, I'm just not very inventive. Like creating worlds out of whole cloth is just it's like so much work it's so many decisions and you have to have so many ideas and I really like it I like puzzles like I like a crossword puzzle give me a bunch of little boxes and tell me I have to fill them up in just the right way and I will be lost in it for hours and I think nonfiction feels like that where it's like here are your memories here's the research there's a lot of material but it's not infinite and you can't make it up like take this material and make it work. And it feels like a puzzle to me. And, and it just works with my brain, mm -hmm. you know? What's your next project? What are you working on? Well, I'm already, I have already handed in a manuscript for a book of craft essays and that'll be coming out next year um, about this time in like exactly a year that'll be coming out on Catapult. And then I'm working on another collection of essays I don't know, something about sex and the body, we'll see. And then I'm working on a sort of um, researched memoir about female celibacy, mine, and that of women throughout history, which sounds like deeply, literally unsexy, but it is very exciting to me, let me tell you. I'm always curious how writers care for themselves. In particular, you 
uh, are a professor and you've got all of these projects coming out, how do you take care of yourself? What do you do for self-care? I do so much. I am so high maintenance when it comes to self-care. Um, I have, you know, uh, these things that my partner calls my modules where they're basically like my self-care elements, like the things that I have to do to remain on an even keel and like be the cheerful, optimistic person that I generally am. Um, and those are therapy, meditation, journaling, exercise, my 12-step meetings, writing, and meaningful contact with my friends and family. And so if I'm doing like at least two of those seven or eight things in a day, I'm okay. If I do all of those things, it's a guaranteed great day. If I don't do any of those things, I'm going to be grumpy by sundown and it's only going to get worse from there on out. Right. So I have to do a lot. And sometimes I feel irritated by that. Um, but mostly I feel really grateful that I have figured out the things that I need to be happy because it has given me this incredible kind of agency in my own happiness and it makes it possible for me um, to write. Well, thank you so much. Melissa, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. We'd like to thank Melissa Phoebos for being on the podcast. You can follow Melissa on Twitter at Melissa Phoebos. Do you have a question, comment, or want to suggest someone for a future episode? Tweet us at Inkslingers2 or email us at inkslingerspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram to see photos of today's guest, and don't forget to visit our website at inkslingerspodcast.com. Inkslingers is written and produced by Jenny Skoog and Sierra Holt. Help with sound design and editing comes from Eric Farley. Special thanks to the Leon Levy Center for Biography for their support. Our music is Dub Feral by Kevin McLeod.